Hello and welcome to this second video podcast for a brand new, all new magazine, Go Classics. Check out issue two. This is on sale currently in all major news agents. And if you can't find it there, just head over to goclassics.co.uk where you can get it both in digital and print format. I'm Shazad Sheikh, aka The Brown Car Guy. And as well as being a motoring journalist and content creator for over three decades, I'm also the media editor and a columnist on Go Classics. Joining me today is Jeff Bailey, who is one of the founders and editor at large at Go Classics. Now, he's been involved in cars personally, professionally, and I dare say emotionally uh, for a very long time. He's been writing about uh, cars and motoring titles for over 20 years now. He has owned over 100 cars, including a 1987 Vauxhall Nova SR. But <laughs> we'll, have to, we'll have to forgive him for that one because he's also had a 1978 Lincoln Continental Mark V, and that is utterly cool. And today's special guest is Simeon Cattle, now more commonly known as Sim, and henceforth he shall be referred to as Sim. Now, he's been working on cars since he was 16 years old. In fact, he was an apprentice working on classic formula racing and Can-Am cars, amongst others. Now, over the last decade, he's established his own workshop, the Classic Project Shop, where they worked on nearly 2,000 cars across 1,000 clients and have restored 46 classic cars, including E-types and Porsche 911. Now, he says he's a classic car all-rounder and not a bore. Sorry, I think... Oh, sorry. That's not a bore in any particular make is, is what he meant to say. Right, okay. That's I, Well, you know what? Let's find out. Let's meet the guys. Hey, everyone. How you all doing? I Pretty good, thanks. Say it very well. <laughs> now, first things first. You, uh, Sim... I don't, Jeff, did you did, did you by any chance get over to the um, Goodwood Revival? No, sadly I didn't because uh, I had uh, rather a full diary, but uh, I've uh, I watched some of it uh, on the stream and it was awesome. So as usual, um, it's, yeah, it's you know, and this things that you just don't want to miss. That's you know, and I've, we've got to talk about this first because I was watching it on online as well, and it's one of those things. I watch it every year online. I watch the racing. It is the best motor racing of all, mm. quite simply. Yeah, and every year I promise myself, oh, I'm going to get to that next year, and I never do. But you, Sim, were there all weekend. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a bit of an old hat to the um, to the revival meeting. I try and make it as many years as I as I can. We're really lucky this year. Um, our partner, Motor Oil. Um, stumped up uh, half a dozen tickets, so I was able to take uh, the majority of the staff down uh, down for the weekend, um, and, and we had a, just a, a wonderful time. I, th I think, actually, Glorious Goodwood was the most glorious I've ever uh, seen it. The weather was fantastic. While on we Saturday, there. it was really good, right? But on Sunday, you had a fair bit of rain. But I tell you what, the rain on Sunday made for some very exciting racing. It does, and um, and I think what they did more this year than they've done any other year was have lots of spots where you could um, sit and uh, and keep dry or keep out of the sun, have a drink, have something to eat, um, and chat to the people that you meet around uh, the place, and also watch the racing. So it you know it just felt um, more inclusive, perhaps. Um, if you were just on a general admission ticket than it has done in previous years. What's your favourite part of the Goodwood Revival? Is it the cars, is it the people, or is it the dressing up? Well, there's, a, there's certainly a bit to the dressing up because it, it just gives it that unique atmosphere that um, that no other car show really has. Um, and I, I, But I, I think it's, it's the atmosphere. And also, if you've been around the classic motor trade 
um, for a while. It's it's just bumping into all of those faces uh, that you haven't seen for a year and and catching up with what you've all been up to, um, and and congratulating each other on you know on 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 the projects and and bits that they've been involved with. So there's just some of the most amazing machinery there and as you say they're not there just to be looked at i mean they are raced hard and and, and that's just fabulous to watch it is incredible to watch i've actually i've been to goodwood a few goodwood festival speed a few times in the past but i've never actually done revival have you done revival jeff yeah yeah in fact i've done revival more than speed actually oh, really yeah yeah um i don't know the 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 speed's fine but i've never really been a racer um i've be more of a observer and some of the spectacle that you get at the revival is is awesome i mean even if you're not a plane enthusiast when you see you know the spitfires flying over and uh, the battle of britain fly and it, it's just evocative of of a well it, it just takes you out of the reality of today into something that may or may not have been true in 1940 i don't yeah. know but it, it certainly feels lovely so what did you guys wear when you went? Uh, this year, it was, Saturday was, uh, was, was a hot day. So I was, I was glad to just be in trousers and a shirt. But, um, uh, you know, the, the, the idea of wearing a full woolen uh, tweed suit was, uh, was a bit too much for me. But it's kind of, it's the, but it's the thing to do, though, isn't it? I mean, that's that's I, part of the thing, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but but I think the isn't the isn't, there, thing... isn't there now like a whole side business in providing you know uh, clothes and 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 stuff that you can wear that's from period. That's well, right. Shaz, I mean, the thing is, uh, last time I went, I um I wore a RAF uniform. Whoa! And, um, I've I've got a pretty good photo actually standing next to a Spitfire, and um, it just. It just felt great. You're wandering around in period uniform. Um, all the girls come up to you and sort of uh, want to take some photographs. It's pretty good, really. <laughs> yeah, that's a good excuse to get dressed up. That's for sure. Oh yeah. Well, so on I eBay, think... in the in the run up to the Festival of Speed on eBay, I just noticed that um, my my eBay feed was full of you know period overalls and all right. uh, and flight jackets and all of that sort of thing. So, um, so even even eBay get in on the on the fact that they can take some money off you for some period clothing. That's so, just the in, uh, that's just the internet spying on you. You do realise it. Realize is, it. I know. Yeah. <laughs> so, so thoroughly recommended. Then the revival is worth visiting. Any any tips for people that are thinking about going next year? Yeah, get, just get there early and and immerse yourself in in the whole thing. Um, you know, there, there's nobody that'll look down um, down their nose at you if you don't want to turn up in your period garb but actually half the fun is getting you know um set up for it uh and and and, and you just feel more a part of, of of everything when you get there um uh, yeah it's, it's just terrific that's brilliant so that's the revival you're obviously part of the uh, tr the classic car trade but looking back at what you've done You've also been a bit like Jeff. You've been involved in the mainstream automotive trade as well. And in fact, you spent a decade at uh, Volkswagen, uh, Renault and BMW. But did that, did that not satisfy you working at new cars or you just found yourself being drawn back to classics? Uh, I've, I've always had a, a thing for classic cars right from, right from being a tiny kid. Um, and, and, and it was always, I always wanted... 
I always had this vision in my head that I wanted to set up my own classic car business. And I suppose where, where the kids are, um, are really lucky at the moment is that the classic car movement has just come on leaps and bounds. And if we were talking about doing um, this sort of thing 20 years ago, everybody would have just looked at us as if we were a little bit odd um, and, and part of a very small clique. Um, but the, the whole movement, the whole retro movement, whether it's cars, planes, um, buses, boats, um, aeroplanes, it's all cool now. Clothing, um, games, um, you know, all of that sort of thing. So, um, so, but there wasn't that 20 odd years ago. So what I needed to learn and what I knew I needed to learn um, was the, the basics of running uh, a motor trade operation. Now, it doesn't really matter whether you're uh, buying and selling a brand new car, a used car or a classic car, you still have to make a margin. Um, it doesn't really matter if you're servicing a modern car or, uh, or, a new, or an old car. Um, there are, there, you know, the, the sort of business mechanics behind it are all the same. Um, so, so, you know, I always had this idea in the back of my head that I was going to build this business. Um, but what I there wasn't a degree to go out and get. There wasn't a special course on how to set up a classic car business. So I needed two things which I didn't have. I needed knowledge and I needed capital. Um, so the the knowledge came from um, being in the motor trade, and I was very lucky, especially during my time at BMW. Um, there was an awful lot of uh, self-improvement or improvement available through the through the network um, so that you could move up through the ranks from administrator when I started sales executive uh, business manager sales manager used car buyer all of those sorts of things um, and, and 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 the other thing was it it paid really well and I you know I was able to put some money aside and, and eventually um, you know, as you say, after 10 years of doing that, have enough money to to start a, a small business. That's awesome. I want to pick up on something you said right at the beginning there, which is very interesting. And I think, Jeff, very relevant to what we're doing with Go Classics. And the fact is that, as Sim said, that it is now cool to look at classics. And isn't that one of the thinking behind starting a magazine such as Go Classics, Jeff? Yeah, basically, the... The way the movement has gone in the last 10, 15 years, certainly since the year 2000, um, there's there's a certain coolness about it. In fact, I was down in the West Country over the weekend and um, in this little village I was staying in, uh, it was picture postcard and I was just sitting there at the local pub and what should roll up but a Morris Minor Traveller. Wow. And do you know what? The, a guy rolled up in an Aston Martin DBS um, and more people were looking at the Traveller than they yeah. were the Aston Martin. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Including me. <laughs> yeah, of course. And I think, and I think, I think that, you know, that's not just even here. 
because I have found that, you know, I guess across the world, because I, you know, uh, Sim, just to fill you in, I spent a lot of time, I've spent about half my career in the Middle East, you know, and most recently I was in Dubai for 13 years. And during my time there, I saw the same sort of transition, because of course, in Dubai, you can imagine that if you're driving around in a supercar, you know, I remember sitting on Jumeirah Beach Road in the cafe and counting six Bugatti Veyrons, you know, in the space of an hour, you know, and, and after a while, you just lose interest completely. But if, a, but if a Morgan three-wheeler turns up or something like that, all of a sudden, everybody's like, what is that? You know? Yes. Well, that, well, that's the thing, actually, Sim, uh, 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 because w- w- with the way I've, I've seen it lately, the, and, and because of the, the political landscape and uh, conservationism and all sorts of uh, green concerns, um, I, I think there's a greater interest in some of the the more frugal classics. I mean, have you seen the price of just 850 minis these days? I mean, I was looking at one the other day and um, they wanted 25,000 quid for it. It was an 850cc mini from 1962, bog standard, nothing special about it. But wow, 25k, uh, I remember not so long ago and probably, you know, five or six years ago when you could could have bought one of those for under 10k so the the more economical um bread and butter vehicles i mean when's the last time you saw a marina for instance well i mean yeah i mean this is crazy you're absolutely right i mean looking at minis or even looking at things like ford escorts but one thing i noticed in this amazing magazine that i happened to pick up the (laughs) other day you know and i I was flicking through it and i noticed something very interesting there's a there's a bit in here says laughing all the way to the bank this bit here and it was talking about, you know, the cars that are on the rise. And it lists the obvious cars like Jaguar Mark II and stuff like that. And then it says Discovery Series 1, which I thought, oh, okay, Discovery Series 1. Okay, I, maybe I can, I can just about see that. And then it says Ford Focus Mark 1, up 7.7%. Yeah. What is going on in the market, guys? Yeah. <laughs> they, 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 were, they were a really good car in period, though. That, that's, that's the first thing. And, and they created a cult following um, when, when they, they were launched. And that's always the, the ones that really take off when they're 20 years old are the ones that, uh, that, that have that, that cult following. So you'll always find some nutter, and there's a nutter out there for everything. And, and I... I class myself in in that uh i think that's true for all three of us surely yeah but 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 there's there is always somebody who wants uh you know an amazing talbot solero because it was the car their their dad had or they remember from their childhood or 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 just it's just plain rare because it's a survivor um so there are those cars that 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 appreciate but the ones that really take off they're the ones that meant something uh, back back when they were brand new. So if you look across the whole landscape of that early 2000s uh, thing, you can see how, um, you know, cars that were awesome in their day, um, like the Focus, um, and, and fast forwards always have a great following, um, really appreciate. The one that's held back, and I, I'm surprised uh, that they're still as cheap as they are, is the Mark I Audi TT. Uh, I remember back in, you know, sort of 99, um, going over to Germany and and buying an Audi TT, uh, bringing it back to the UK. They were all left-hand drive at that time. might have been a touch earlier. Uh, But parking it on my driveway, I got back late at night, 
parked it on my driveway and, uh, and, and when I woke up in the morning, there were seven people stood in my driveway looking at this thing wide-eyed like it had landed from space. And that's a really cheap car at the moment. So if you're looking at something, it, it just needs another couple of years uh, for, for all, the, all the doggy ones to sort of die off. Um, because Audis were just better built than the, than the Focus in the first place. So there's more of them available at the moment. The Mark I Focuses, there's actually very, very few of them uh, left because they all got run up to 200,000 miles. Nobody spent any money on servicing them. And so they're a rare commodity now. That's why they've taken off that little bit earlier. But I think if you want a tip for today, go out, spend four or five grand on a really good sub 100,000 mile Audi TT225 fixed head. Uh, and and I think in another 10 years time, you'll be looking at a 15 to 20,000 pound car. I think you're absolutely right. I think that's a really good tip and really good advice. And I think that something that you've said there, uh, I think really strikes a chord. And it's the cars that are kind of epochal at the time that they came out. So when the Audi TT came out, that first one, uh, I mean, not so much the later ones, but when that first one came out, like you say, it was a real standout design, the Bauhaus design, as they called it. And similarly with the Focus, because I remember I actually did, was fortunate enough to be, in fact, I think that was my first international launch. I actually went on the launch for that one. And I remember we drove this thing and with the other journalists, we were just completely blown away because the dynamics of the car, and we're talking bog standards cars, you know, we're not talking like the you know performance variants, but the regular car, the dynamics, the handling dynamics were just so much superior to anything in that segment. It was just incredible. And it was such a move on from the Mark for and a half, whatever it had got to, fell Mark V uh, Escort that went before it. Not only uh, was it a completely different design language, it handled better, um, you know, the interior had more space in it, it felt new and modern, you know, the dash swept all over the place, it had, uh, you know, everything looked like it was part of Ford. Then they, Don't forget um, the baseball stitching on the seats. Baseball stitching, yeah. And, yeah. and the other thing was, um, you know, Ford did their tie-up with Sony at the time, and they put what was probably the best stereo there was going in a, a, a really basic car. So you've got yeah. a CD player, you've got, um, you know, decent speakers yeah. uh, in the car. When, when, when most other manufacturers, if you went across them, you had ports, to swap them out. Yeah, I mean, at the time, Astra, I remember. You, they yeah, were terrible, weren't yeah, they? Yeah, you, you'd have to swap out the stereos. I remember Ford have always done good stereos, though, because I remember, like, back in our college days, cruising around in the mates, his dad had a Granada Scorpio, and we used to cruise around in that all the time, and the stereo on that was extraordinary. So these cars have saving merits. I wonder, Jeff, what were the saving merits of a 1987 Vauxhall Nova? <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> Hands up, there are none. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you the story about that because um, I, I just joined a new company and they, in those, it was an insurance company. In those days, um, the, there was a very real pecking order within the management. Okay, so um, if you had a, well, for instance, a, a 1.6 Cavalier, you'd be seriously up there in the hierarchy. Um, to have a two-liter was unheard of. You'd have to be a managing director or something. Um, and all the reps were driving, um, you know, basically 1.1 Fiestas and that sort of thing. And uh, so I was I was offered a, a, a choice of Vauxhalls up to a certain value. And 
everybody, but everybody was going for 1.3 Astras. Okay, so I looked at it and I thought that put, wouldn't pull the skin off a rice pudding. It didn't look very nice. I didn't like it. And I thought, do you know what? As usual, typical me, I thought, I'm just going to be different. I just want to just completely buck the trend. So I ordered a 1.3 SR Nova with a sunroof, which again was a status symbol in those days. Um, you just, you know, if you had a sunroof, you were a cut above. So anyway, I drove this car. As soon as I got into it, I thought, oh my God, I've made a big mistake here. Because although it did have the 1300 engine, it really was um, like porridge. It didn't handle, it It was just like an overweight camel. And I, <laughs> I really hated it. So it, it was just not the sort of car that anybody else would have. Uh, I had it for a, uh, for about a year. And, um, and how old, I, how old were you when you had that car? I was probably, I don't know, 25, 26. So, so, it, so, you, it, so you weren't, so you weren't too far from the demographic of the car because it was a teenager's no, car really, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, in fact, it became more of a teenager's car. Um, as soon as they, they put a, the, the uh, 1600 lump in it and um and then it, it actually that had fuel injection and it did go quite well but uh, um incidentally my um my column which uh, my little uh, four parser in in the magazine it's audi to aston and it chronicles all of the cars i've had over the years and um i was just looking at the um uh, the rushes for issue three and I thought, crikey, look at this. It was um, the last one I had in the um, in the next section was a yellow, bright yellow golf, what they called color concept. And wow. Was, yeah, it was a convertible. So it was bright yellow and it had yellow leather in it as well. Now, who at Volkswagen thought that was a good thing to put on the panel? <laughs> but equally, who was I? You bought one. You bought one. There you go. That justified it altogether. Let's go. I think Sim wants to come in on yeah. something. But after that, I want to come back and ask you about that Lincoln. Yeah. I think yeah. it's an interesting point to make, though, that the majority of cars, if you walk into any dealership uh, now, they're all great. Um, so they're all great cars. So you can go and buy a one-litre EcoBoost Fiesta. It's got nice wheels. It's got heated seats. It's got great stereo in it. All of these things, they're desirable things. Whereas cars of 20 years ago, the majority of them weren't very good, uh, you know, and, and your dad drove something that was a little bit boring, um, uh, but it got the family around. Uh, it didn't have all the spec and bits and pieces. And, and, and there was much more to aspire to, uh, you know, and I remember being back in the 80s, uh, having my parents turn up at school in a in a in a uh, Nissan uh, Prairie with the sliding doors on the side of it, you know, it was oh. white with beige cloth inside I, my it. New, my new agent had a, one of those. He loved it. Was it. A, it, it was it was a great family car, but yeah. it was just awful to look at. Yeah. Uh, and 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 then there'd be other kids, and you know, their parents would rock up in a five sixty SEC Mercedes, oh. and it just used to blow my brains apart. <laughs> Um, but but that's the problem. Now, you know, my my 17-year-old daughter is driving around in a car with nav heated seats. Yeah. 
alloys, remote locking, all the trickery in it. What have they got to look forward to? We, you know, we did yeah. our time in some pretty dreadful yeah, parts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and at least we had something <laughs> to get off our ass and, and yeah. work for so that we didn't have to drive these terrible things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. something to aspire to, definitely. Yeah. And you make a very valid point because even as an automotive journalist who's, who's been doing you know, car testing and car reviewing for a while, you know, we, we have the same dilemma because, you know, like you say, 10, 15, 20 years ago, it was quite easy to say, that's a bad car. That's a good car. That one's okay. But, you know, you could do... Honestly, nowadays, you drive anything and it's like, well, it's hard to find a fault with it, honestly, because, you know, if it's fit for purpose, it's a great car. Most of them are. But, Jeff, was the Lincoln Continental Mark V fit for purpose? It depends where you're driving it, Shazam. <laughs> um, I, I was living in rural Gloucestershire at the time. Oh, which, my God. You know, I do some silly things. <laughs> <laughs> I was in um, I was in Miami and I was seeing friends and uh, um, they were into cars and they took me around to various dealerships and sitting forlorn in the corner was this Lincoln Continental Mark V and it was a Bill Blass edition. Now Bill Blass, for those who don't know, was an American designer um, of dubious taste, I might add. But uh, anyway. Uh, the, the Lincoln Continental, what they called designer series, was um, it was available. For, they had a Cartier edition, so the guys at Cartier put their mark on it. And this was Bill Blass's uh, go at it, and it it was white with white vinyl roof, uh, white leather interior, sequin, <laughs> uh, opera windows, and um, and a, a dark blue flank uh, on each side, and you. Even in the States, you couldn't, you know, you just couldn't ignore it. And, and I didn't. I went over and had a look at it, and I thought, oh, I like the look at that. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I know, I know it's it's crazy, but it's true. And I'll tell you the reason why. I always loved the series Canon, where that the big detective, yeah, from yeah. Canon, used to, we had we had the big bushy moustache, yeah. um, and he, he used to fling this thing around. He had a Mark IV, incidentally, not a right. Mark IV, but they're very similar. And I... I always wanted one. And uh, so uh, I looked at this and I said to the guy, how much? And he said, well, I said, I'm, I'm just going to ship this on out. He said, uh, uh, how does a thousand dollars sound? Wow. That sounds good to me. Said, <laughs> Needs a bit of work. It, and um, anyway, so we, we got it back to my mate's place in Miami and we, we, we fettled it a bit at that end because you could easily get the bits. So anyway, we, we put it all together and, uh, and I shipped it over and, um, uh, I thought, well, how hard can it be? You just put it on a boat and ship yeah. it over. Well, it's a bit more complex than that, but not a lot. So, uh, incidentally, um, I might uh, do a little, uh, little plug for our issue three. Um, we've got a, um, a six page, spread on how to import your own american car so that's really good time. that's really yeah. useful i'll tell um, you another i tell you another thing i'm just going to touch on issue two which yeah. is still out at the moment because one thing i noticed in issue two which i thought was really good is there's a feature in there called starter motors and it, you and you have all the usual stuff in there which makes perfect sense and then you had this which i thought which to me is a top tip and not a lot of people in the uk would pick up on that but fox body mustangs are really on the up right now and you've actually highlighted that. So, well, that's kudos. Well done on that one. But that's one of the things that you could bring over because they're like a couple of thousand dollars you can pick those up for. But Well, this is, this is very true. And, and there, there's some, there are some bargains to be had. And um, 
bringing it in yourself, as I say, isn't as hard as it sounds um, initially. Um, you've got to go through a checklist, and we've we've outlined this in in issue three. So um, if you buy the mag, you'll have the the full roadmap. Um, but the, I mean, when I brought the uh, Lincoln in, that that was uh, that was slightly difficult because the car is nearly twenty foot long um, and <laughs> seven foot wide, and it's got about as much room inside as a Cortina. Yeah. Um, but my God, what a comfortable vehicle with seven and a half liter V8 in it. Um, good solid Detroit V8 full iron, um, starts every time rides like a magic carpet. The only problem is you've got to watch yourself in car parks and things yeah, like that. I used to take it up to the local yeah. pub and, um, and it, it used to just draw crowds. And so if you're if you're not a shy retiring wallflower like well like Simeon for instance, I, I reckon Simeon I could see you in one of these. So Sim, actually, I was going to ask you because you've done uh, well, you you look after something like nearly two thousand cars uh, in, in the workshop that you run. Have you run anything? Have you worked on anything like that? A Lincoln Continental Mark V? Yeah, I would say most of most of the American stuff we see is probably a little bit earlier uh, than that. But if, actually, when we're at Goodwood at the weekend. Um, uh, I got uh, I got overtaken by a '62 series Cadillac, uh, which is a be- beautiful thing. Um, on, 59, on the, the 59 the is in. my favourite, the Cadillac Deville. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and actually we have one of those on the books as well. Um, but the, the the thing about looking after American cars is it's actually a it's it's quite a bit easier than you think. Yeah. There are a couple of companies here in the UK that um, that can supply you most of most of the very basic parts uh you know oil filters air filters that sort of thing breaks um here in the uk and they can ship almost immediately but the the great thing um about american cars is there's companies out in the states like eclers for example they've got the most amazing website you can go on you can check all the bits you need um you know they'll they'll freight them over, handle the customs and other bits and pieces, and get them to you within a couple of days. So actually, we find working on um, American cars much easier than working on Japanese cars, for example, and and also easier than working on some of the um, the, the more exotic German cars. Um, just the bits are are freely available; they don't break the bank. Um, so, 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 you know, and, and, and they can get them to you fast. So what about Japanese cars? You mentioned their Japanese cars. And again, you know, like, I mean, you know, I, I equate a lot of Japanese cars as classic cars these days, but still, I still feel that a lot of people here don't. What sort of classic cars from Japan have you worked on? Um, we, we don't see a, a massive amount of uh, Japanese cars because it is, it is quite a niche, um, as, as you say, it's quite a niche little hobby at the moment. Um, the ones we see most regularly are sort of the Datsun 240, 260s, yeah. um, the early Celicas. Um, we're not quite as in with the crowd for the, for, for the ones that are really popular at the moment, which is the sort of 80s through to... Um, so, so you get all the uh, early toy- 16 valve Toyotas mm-hmm. uh, and then the Nissan GTRs. There are a lot of really good specialists yeah. for those. So we don't tend to see those uh, very often. Um, but um, what we find with the 
early cars, the early Japanese cars, actually parts availability is pretty difficult, especially carburettors and things like that. So instead of um, looking, for, for example, with the with the Datsuns, they've generally they've got a Hitachi carburettor on them, which is a copy of a, an SU, and they just don't work very well. Can't get the bits. So what you end up doing is 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 a weather conversion on them, and then they sound amazing and they go like hell. This is very interesting. Now, I was going to ask you this question, and I think this is a really good segue into that, because a lot of people here, they, they feel that if they have a classic car, they need to go to a specialist that specializes in that mark. But it sounds like from what you've just said there, that actually because you work on so many different marks and you're exposed to the whole spectrum of what out, what's out there and what's available, that puts you at a unique advantage, it seems like. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. I think where you've got to draw the line is look at where um, where where your knowledge base is going to let you down or where taking something's going to take you too long to do. So really simply, I had a guy on the phone just before this uh, who was talking about an Audi UR Quattro. Now, there's l almost 90% of that we can do in-house, but he's got a diff issue and a gearbox issue. And both of those we would outsource to a specialist. So we can do the majority of them. We can get the products out of the car. But when we know we're a little bit out of our depth or out of our comfort zone, uh, or we haven't quite got the tooling to set something very complex like a gearbox or a diff up, then it's what, where, where I think we're unique is that we've got a really great um, selection of, of specialists that we can then either send that part to or put the customer um, in contact with. So especially in the classic car world, you, you just can't do everything. So it's knowing what you do really well uh, and then not being protectionist about the job and uh, giving the customer the best advice to go and get that problem sorted out. So I think that's where we really try and do it. We try to look at the problem and put a solution together, whether or not it directly impacts, you know, our bottom line or not. A, a happy customer with a functioning car will come back for the things that we can do. That's true. And Jeff, from your point of view, because you've owned so many cars, classic to modern and all kinds of marks, for, what, what, as a consumer, what have you found better, working with a specialist or working with somebody that's uh, overarching all brands? Or are there specific reasons to go to specific people for specific purposes? That's many questions in one, mate. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the best way I can answer that is... Well, you, you have owned 100 cars, so come on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> a, a lot of these classics were when they were new and they were rubbish, you know, but that, now they're classic. Um, but the, I, I think the, the answer to that is pretty simple. It's horses for courses. If you've got a car that's relatively new um, and it's got a three-year warranty, you've got to generally take it to the main dealer. But equally now, what with the EU legislation as it was, um, you can now take that to anywhere that's got the right sort of equipment. And, um, you know, that, that protectionist aspect has gone. But... I mean, for instance, I've got a um, BMW 735i that I've owned since my dad left it to me and he bought it new and that car's 32 years old. And that we ran through the main dealer network up to the point, in fact, Sim knows this because he knows the car and he worked for BMW at the time. 
you know, it's it was then I don't know ten years old or so, and um, it, it was just getting. You took it to the main dealer, and I was getting some pretty shoddy service, to be quite honest, um, because the people that were working on the cars back then were really didn't know what this model was. But there's a difference between slightly shoddy service and no service. And now, if if you took that car into a BMW main dealer, although it's only done fifty thousand miles, they would just go. We don't know what to do about that. So, for instance, that car I take to a specialist um, in older BMWs, and the MD of this firm, a bit like Sim, really, you know, he's been around the block, he knows what's what. He said to me, "I used to work on these as a technician when I was, you know, just just trained up." So he said, "I was eighteen, and I was working on these when they were new." He said, "So I know stuff about these that." No one else does. He said, "I." And he, he went through. I said, "Well, go through the car, and let's just go through that car and tell me what's wrong with it." And for instance, he found um, a, a little gasket. He said that had dropped down onto the suspension arm, um, and uh, he said, "I know what that is, and I know where it goes." He said, "But if you took that anywhere else, they'd go and throw it away." He said, "And I just put it back where it came from," and he said, "So my my knowledge goes down to anorak level." So. Um, you know that's great because you're getting a you're getting value for money there. They know what they're doing, uh, they know how to do it, uh, and that's fine. But equally, I'm sure Sim could, you know, work on you know 99% of that car yeah. because it's fairly it's standard fare. Uh, he could work on the Lincoln, for instance. Again, pretty straightforward stuff. But there are certain types of vehicle that I agree what he says there. Um, you know, that you are Quattro, um, parts are getting quite difficult on that. Um, parts are also getting difficult on things like Lotus Elise now, would you believe? Um, wow. Yeah. Um, and um, so there's, there's well, what else was it? I was talking to a Bentley specialist, in fact, only last week. And he was saying that the Arnage, which I consider a modern Bentley, mm-hmm. but they're now... 20 years old for the earliest ones and a lot of parts for that are getting quite scarce and difficult to get hold of and therefore expensive so when it comes down to it you know what we've got here is a is a situation where um the 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 parts um uh, how can i put it the um lifespan is is getting shorter and shorter and shorter and and, and, do you find that sim i mean actually yeah yeah, well let's 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 come back to sim i just want to say how how upset the dog is about not being able to find parts on classic cars now clearly he was he was was, was quite struck by that but but actually it's segue in nicely from what jeff was talking about i want to ask you about two aspects uh sim not only is it becoming more and more of an issue getting parts for classic cars, but also keeping in mind the fact that there is now a new industry in 3D printing and stuff like that. But on the other side, the human aspect of it, the human skill aspect of it, is that becoming harder and harder to find and to to have people that can can just, you know, like people could tune engines or tune carburetors by sound. Are there still people that can do that? Yeah, I think that's a really good point you make. Actually, parts supply um, on certain models that we've discussed, that can be difficult, but actually there's just a huge industry 
that's just galvanizing pace all the time. Uh, and, and if we're having this conversation five to 10 years ago, there would be models, I would say, that were really difficult to find bits for that we just take for granted. I can pull off the shelf straight away now. So that, that as, as the whole classic car movement gets, um, you know, more invigorating and more money, then, then those parts are becoming available. What tends to happen is it's the gap between uh, a, a modern car and when it becomes truly classic. So again, flipping back 10 years ago, the Mark I Golf was an absolute pain in the ass to work on because you couldn't get any of the bits. But now, VW Heritage, they can supply you anything, anything you need. And because, that's interesting because even the manufacturers are getting in on this, aren't they? Because yeah. even, even for example, I think Lancia recently reintroduced panels for the Delta Integrale, didn't they? That's right. That's right. So that, that is one thing. The other thing, as you rightly say, is the human aspect and, 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 and this massive gaping hole in the, in the knowledge bank. Now, where we are, we're based in Vista um, and we're, we're actually we're so lucky around here uh, and have been. And, and the business would have failed um, years ago without it. But um, we, here in Oxfordshire, we have TWR just down the road, uh, Aston Martin, Jaguar, okay, three, three uh, uh, with all the SVO, Special Vehicle Operations Departments. So, so one of the things that I've been able to do is employ guys in their 50s and 60s. I've got a chap here, works for me, Clive, he's now 72. Um, but still comes in and, and, and works every day with our, our younger team um, and, and, and offload that knowledge. So we've had a great range of, of older guys that have been that have come in and worked for us. A chap called John Weller, John Jardine, um, uh, Steve, who's our workshop controller, Clive. They're all ex-TWR, Aston Martin or Jaguar men um, that, that, have, that have come to work for the business. And what we've done is we've taken on apprentices right over the our, our last our, our first apprentice uh, has actually just left the business. He's uh, gone on to uh, work for an electric drivetrain company that are doing conversions for classics. Um, but he's come right the way through the business from starting with absolutely zero knowledge as a 16 year old, being able to go to college. Uh, we support the Heritage Skills Academy here at Vista. Uh, and we've now taken 12, 12 apprentices through that programme. So my, um, I suppose, younger segment of, of, of my staff, of which there are five of them, uh, still still working here. And the others have gone on to work for other uh, heritage engineering businesses or to set up on their own. Um, they, they, they've, they've sucked up all that knowledge. Um, and, and they're able to apply everything they've learned from guys uh, like Clive and John um, and, 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 and fix your cars. And actually, without those people, we, we, we wouldn't have a business today because it's, um, it's only in recent years, again, a bit like the parts supply, that heritage engineering has become something you can do as a career. Um, certainly, it wasn't around when I started. Uh, my parents thought it was a really stupid pipe dream and I'd never make a living out of it at all. Um, and, 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 and they thought that, you know, it would be a hobby. Um, and perhaps in my heart of hearts, I thought it might have been a hobby, but the game's moved on. Um, you know, we've got a serious movement here 
um, and, uh, and 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 a lot of interest, a lot of public interest uh, in 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 what we do in preserving history. It's not about whether or not the cars are green or anything else. It's about preserving a really important piece of our industrial uh, heritage, uh, and of which this country was absolutely at the forefront of. You know, uh, that's uh, one of the things, one of the takeaways from what you've just said there, it sounds to me is, is that it's not just a business that you're running. It's not just a workshop where you're fixing, repairing cars, but it's almost, it's almost a continuation of service to the car community that you're providing right. with the fact that, you know, there are younger people that are learning things that they might not otherwise have learned and will then be able to apply that for the next 20, 30 years yes. going forward and looking forward. How do you think, I mean, is there a career for those guys? Because there's a lot of concern at the moment, you know, especially with all the legislation and everything that's changing and the 2030 ruling, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, there's a lot of myths and uh, misunderstandings and misperceptions about what's going to happen. And one of the things that people often say is that, well, you know, classic cars won't exist anymore and they won't be around anymore. So it's, it's not a good idea to think about, in, you know, investing a career in them. Do you think that there's any modicum of truth in that? Well, I think, I think they're broadly, they're wrong. Um, we, we have to understand that the Greens have got the political floor uh, and they're right to, to have the political floor. We need to find um, a better way to move ourselves around to deliver our kids to school, uh, to go and get our groceries, you know, all of those things. We need to find a greener, better way of doing it, whether that's electric cars, hydrogen, public transport. We can argue that all day long. That doesn't take away from the fact that uh, you can look at an old car as a piece of art, um, as a um, as a, a piece of heritage engineering, as um, a statement of of what life was like in that period, which is what Goodwood's all all about. I mean, Goodwood is all about going back to the fifties and feeling that air of uh, you know post-war optimism. Um, and 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 joy and, and and music and food and fashion and all the rest of it uh, and the cars are part of that. Um, so so if we look at this, the the further we've come on in terms of engineering, uh, the more we love to look back on the past. So no matter what happens, I think there will always be. Goodwood Festival of Speed, you know, um, Concord events and all of those sorts of things. So we do need a small army of people who are trained to work on these vehicles. And that's something we're really involved with because, um, uh, you know, without I'm, I'm, I'm 40 years old, I've got to make this business run until I'm 65 at least. Um, so I, I need another 25 years out of it. So I need guys coming through and working for me because God knows I'm useless with a spanner. So, um, so, so that's not something you, you know, want to be we, admitting in a podcast. We're working at a workshop. Honestly, <laughs> honestly, if a customer sees me uh, pick up a spanner anywhere near the car, they can have the job for free. I've got I've got far more qualified guys who can who can work on the car. What I can do is I can market the business and I can uh, and I and I can facilitate all the different skills that 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 are needed to, to get their car on the road. But can, yeah, can I'm I just no come in there, Shazad. Yeah, go on. 
there's, there's, some, there's something that uh, occurred to me listening to what Sim's saying and what you, you, you said, and that's about what cars are used for. Because, okay, you you talk to the man in the street, the person in the street, and they're going to go, yeah, well, it's for getting from A to B, and that's really what it's for. It doesn't really matter. It gets me there, and it gets me there. But as any car enthusiast will know, whether it's classic or any other car, um, the, the part of the joy is in the ownership and, and doing what you do with it, hence so many different clubs and what have you. But I've often been criticised by people uh, who have taken the, the mickey out of me for for having certain cars oh well that doesn't you know, the not to 60 on that is rubbish oh it, it doesn't go that fast or doesn't handle you know all that all that old nonsense and one of the things that i look for in a car and sim just just hit on this and it just reminded me is the fact it can be art there are some cars i've driven very very little yet I've sat in them, I've polished them, I've been in the drive, sat there with a beer and looked it up and down. And, you know, it's art. There is nothing wrong, in my opinion, of owning a car and not driving it much, Um, but just looking at it, polishing it, just drinking in the feel for it. Rolls-Royce, for instance, certain, you know, an older Rolls-Royce, you you sit in that and the patina is... It, it's just amazing, and, yeah. the, and then you, you know, you, you marvel at the craftsmanship, the wood, the leather, um, and just the, the, just everything about it. And um, Aston Martin, similar sort of thing, although they're you know, pretty, mostly a pretty good drivers' cars. Um, the the DB9 I had, you know, I just sometimes just take it to the pub, have a half pint, and just sit outside looking at it. And, that's so beautiful, you know? And to me, that is partly what owning a classic's about. It's not necessarily about ragging it around Goodwood, although some people like doing that. But I do have a problem with people who, um, you know, say, well, racing is the only way to go, um, driving it balls out up Shelsley Walsh, uh, it's, it's the only way to go. I don't agree. I think there's other ways of enjoying these classics. I absolutely agree with you, and I think that that is fundamental to classics because classics. This is the this is why uh, reviewing a classic as a journalist is completely different to reviewing a new car. Reviewing a new car, you're analysing its qualities. Reviewing a classic, you're analysing its place in history. You're analysing yes. the 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 emotional draw that that car has and the feelings that it evokes in you. That's what you're talking about. It doesn't have to be fast. It doesn't have to be good. It doesn't have to be able to even stop. Well, it should stop, but not that well. It doesn't even have to go around corners. That's why I love American cars. That's why I love that Lincoln because I don't really care if it goes around corners. It's just awesome to behold. Anyway, guys, we've gone full circle and we've actually come back to Goodwood, which I do like the symmetry of this, but we're coming up to the the end of this uh, uh, fascinating and fantastic uh, video podcast that we've done. So to end, because the theme of Go Classics to a large extent is basically what we've just spoken about there, is to encourage people to get into classic car ownership, to buy these cars. Uh, So Sim, I'll leave this with you. Your try and keep it brief, but your sort of top three tips for newbies that are thinking about buying, owning and running a classic car. Okay. If you can't afford it once, uh, twice, sorry, you can't afford it once. So, so that, you, you know, it doesn't matter what classic you buy, there's going to be stuff you need to do to it. So set aside half your budget for buying and, and the second half for improving or 
running it. Those are that's that's the one the one biggie. Uh, the second thing is to find somebody you can who who can help you maintain it. Um, whether that's a little local garage, a specialist, somebody like us. Um, and the other thing in which people miss uh, understand all the time, keep it clean. Um, and, and they think, oh, you know, neat freaks. I don't want to be washing the car. I want to use it all the time. Do use it all the time. But there is nothing worse for a car than putting it back damp and muddy. It will cost you so much money uh, in 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 a short period of time so keep it clean keep it well maintained and only spend half your budget on the actual car you can't go too far wrong that's awesome and sim just quickly where can people find you okay uh we're based in Bicester, um just uh just outside of oxford um and they can find us at projectshop.co.uk there's an exhaustive uh website they can follow us on instagram uh instagram forward slash uh, classic project shop and on facebook which is project sh uh, forward slash project shop tv and i noticed on your website that it's not even just about providing a service but if people just want to call you for advice and stuff like that you're even open to that yep call us for advice if we can help we will if we can't we sure as hell know somebody you will be able to sim thank you so much for being a guest on today's podcast really appreciate uh, you taking the time to do You're this welcome. thanks again jeff for joining us and uh thanks a lot guys we'll see you in the magazine we'll see you in issue three hopefully and yes. uh, we'll catch all of you guys soon in our next podcast stay tuned make sure that you're subscribing to channels and of course like i said head over to goclassics.co.uk to pick up a copy either in print or digital just download it read it now there's so much great stuff in this mag it's absolutely ram-packed thanks so much for joining us and we'll see you all again in the next podcast cheerio so you want something sleek and glamorous and then check out the Jaguar E-Type featured in our launch issue alongside many other features such as buying guides, owner's tips and even how to buy your own first classic car. Go Classics is about the cars that you relate to, the cars that you've dreamed of and the cars that you can own, run and enjoy. At Go Classics we'll tell you how. Go Classics is the most exciting car magazine on the shelves today. And it's out now. And you can get one by heading over to goclassics.co.uk where you can find some of our fantastic limited time subscription offers. Forget about the boring, the pompous, the self-important. If you want something new, Go, go Classics! classics.